it's just another level of cynicism on that point is that they just want to go back to their base and say, well, I tried this, even though we kind of know it's never going to work. Um, so I find this whole thing a little frustrating because it it takes away from like genuine conversation, like what we're having right now about how we could actually reform things in a practical matter here. It's just more political gridlock. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for politically eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Ricky, well, I'm hailing from the free state of Florida. Unexpected trip here. I was supposed to go through Texas to get to California, but uh, there was some weather. So I'm just soaking up all the freedom over here. Mm. How goes it? I'm very jealous. Yeah. I'm, I'm weathering away in an authoritarian city over here in New York City, but that's okay. So I have a question for you. If you had to pick a completely apolitical celebrity to be president for the next four years, you just get to nominate them. Who would it be? Apolitical. Completely non-political celebrity figure that you just, just for fun. Oh, because I would have picked Schwarzenegger or somebody like that who's done, the, you know, at least no, some no, executive experience. No, no, no. This has got to be like a left field person that you just feel like it'd be interesting. I think Josh Allen, the I don't quarterback even know for the Buffalo is. Bills. Oh. Yeah, he's just an everyman, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, I think our stadium, if you were president, you know, that boondoggle of a stadium, it, it wouldn't be just a few billion dollars. I think we can get like a $500 billion stadium for Western New York, which is mm-hmm. my top priority. How about you? I feel like I'd love to see what would happen if Gwyneth Paltrow was president for four years. I think it'd be oh my really God. entertaining and super fun. I'm well, I mean, if we, we're talking about globalist elites, I think it doesn't get much more elite than her. Have you ever know. been to that Goop store in? Uh, I in, have been right down on the street Bond from street. our office. Yeah, there's one yeah. down in by our office. I didn't know that. What is huh. Goop? Well, I Bond Goop. is what I. It's yeah, her, I meant Bond. It's her but, initials. Yeah. Goop. Oh, but what Isn't is that, it? It's exactly? kind of clever. I don't know. It's super weird. It's like all this stuff that she likes, including like a candle that smells like her lady parts or something bizarro like that. Yeah. Or something, there's something, someone needs to fact check me, one of our producers, but there's something like along those lines that I'm pretty sure was involved in her store. Let me see. Well, I like it. Whether that's true or not, I I, I, I want to live in a world where people are buying that candle. So let's just assume it's true. Okay. You know, it is true. Okay. Okay. I wasn't wrong. That would have been really weird if I made that one up, but okay. It is true. It's weird that she made it up. Anyways, I think that's a good qualifier to be a presidential candidate in my book. Well, I don't want to live in that world. Maybe I'll move back to Costa Rica and, and that's get right back on a plane. Before we start here, just a quick announcement. Our podcast, The Hardest Step from the Lost Debate Group is now out. It's dropped on its own feed and it will be available on this feed that you're listening to right now on Sunday. And also we've been hearing from a lot of you in the voicemails. Keep them coming. Our phone number is 321-200-0570. Well, okay, we've got we've got a bunch of fun stories today. We're going to talk about the dark side of credit card rewards. Uh, then we're going to talk about GOP proposals for abolishing the IRS and instituting a national sales tax. But first, let's talk about weight loss wonder drugs. There was a new weight loss trend taking over social media for users looking to shed some pounds. These days, it's the talk of TikTok. The topic Ozempic has over 300 million views. A diabetes medication that's widely hailed as a miracle weight loss drug. Being on this medication has helped me tremendously with my health. It's a miracle. It's too good to be true. Oh. 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 
People with type 2 diabetes are excited about the potential of once-weekly Ozempic. If you've been on social media and especially TikTok or um, in Elon Musk's little universe on Twitter anytime recently, you've probably heard of Ozempic. It's been making a lot of buzz um, because despite a long history of diet trends and fads kind of not working so well for a lot of people, medications having side effects going back to the 19th century when we were attempting to medicate um, weight problems. Ozempic seems to be the first drug of its sorts to have no major downsides and actually be very effective in helping people lose weight. So much so that people are using this type 2 diabetes drug on an off-label basis and there's actually a shortage occurring. But there are questions that are arising about what this really will look like long-term for society, for people's health, and and what this all means. Yeah, and there's a long history of drugs initially being piloted for patients with type 2 diabetes in particular, or different mechanisms for diabetes that then become used for other purposes. So metformin is another drug people might remember that's been really popular. And actually, in a lot of countries, you don't need a prescription for it, but in the United States, you do. Continuous glucose monitors. So you have this this rising trend of people wearing blood sugar monitors uh, that don't have diabetes. And I would say this is this Ozempic and the semaglutides and what they're also called GLP-1 agonists. This is probably the most pronounced version of this phenomenon that we've ever seen. And we'll get into the ethics of it all. Like, is it ethical to use this off-label, as you say? But let's take a step back and just talk about what this means. So there have been all sorts of weight loss drugs out there, but none in recent memory has had quite the hold on our you know, collective culture and sort yeah. of uh, medical establishment as this. And essentially it works in a number of different ways, but I'll just start with the data because the data is really what's driving the sensation around this. There was one seminal study uh, amongst a few that I think really spurred the sort of gold rush around this drug. And so this is from 2021, and this is a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And interestingly, it was funded by Novo Nordisk, which is the manufacturer of this drug, but it was you know, published in probably the most reputable medical journal in the country and carried out by you know reputable researchers. And it involved 2,000 patients with a BMI of 30 or greater who did not have type 2 diabetes. And two-thirds of the patients in this study were giving Ozempic, which is the sort of most prominent version of this drug, and one-third were in the placebo group. Now, notably, everybody in this group were given certain lifestyle coaching interventions. So like, you know, coaching on what to eat and, you know, basically coached to have a caloric restriction and work out more, et cetera. The data is absolutely insane here. So uh, the people who were in the participant group at week 68, people who lost 5% or more of their body weight, 86% of the people in the intervention group, so the people who took the drug versus 31% in the control group, the placebo group. The people who made, who lost 10% or more of their weight were 69% who took the drug versus 12% in the placebo group. And then people who lost 15% or more of their weight were over 50% of people who took this drug by week 68 lost 15% of their body weight or more versus 4.9% in the placebo group. So notably, the placebo group did lose weight. Uh, for, you know, 4.9% of people losing 15% is pretty good. And 
um, 31% losing 5% or more is also pretty good. And notably, the people who took this drug, you might be like, well, losing weight is not necessarily a positive if you lose the wrong kind of weight. The people who took this drug lost more, uh, were lost more of like the bad kind of weight that you want to lose than lean body mass. So they weren't losing more muscle than they were fat, essentially, whereas it was the opposite for the people in the placebo group. So all in all, this is a drug that's producing, at least in this study, results that are absolutely jaw-dropping, and that's led to a you know massive, massive rush to to get this drug. Yeah. And just to like a statistic that might be a little more digestible here is um, BMI was down 16% among people who were on Ozempic versus 0.6% among people on the placebo. So that's kind of like a salient figure there just to show you how much, even if you're not aware, there's, there's not a placebo effect going on here. And the way that this drug works essentially is it's injected once weekly and it lowers your blood sugar. It also slows down the process of food leaving your stomach. So um, you feel full and satiated for a longer period of time with whatever you eat. And it also stops the liver from making too much sugar. So there's a few different mechanisms at play here. Um, and it's not the most cost-effective way to lose weight, that's for sure. It can range from $900 to $1,300 a month. Um, and only about 30% of people who are obese are covered by their insurance at the moment. And certainly if you are not in the obese category and just taking it to um, lose weight for cosmetic reasons, as a lot of celebrities have, that bill is going straight to you and not to your insurer. So it's definitely not a long-term sustainable solution for people. I think that's um, pretty clear. And a lot of people do tend to regain weight as soon as they go off of it as well. Yeah. So as of now, the data seems to suggest that you would have to do this for the rest of your life if you want to maintain your weight loss, which is notable. Now, I want to take a step back because I've actually tried this drug. So I'll explain like my, my experience with this. So I generally do everything. Like, so I've done the continuous glucose monitors. I've taken metformin before. And when I, I first heard about this in a November, 2021 podcast from Peter, Dr. Peter Atier, where he was talking about, and we'll link in the show notes to this episode, which he, where he gave the most detailed explanation of what was going on here and explained how he had been using it with his patients. And I was like, Whoa, this is crazy. So I, my father is a doctor and I was like, all right, let me get him to prescribe this for me. So I, I get him to prescribe it for me. I walk into a CVS and they're like, okay, we have to get prior authorization from your insurance company to have them cover this. Otherwise, it's over $1,000 a month. So I was like, sorry, I'm not paying over $1,000 a month. I'm, I don't, I'm not What made you want to go on it in the first place? Like, Well, I have this fitness group. Uh, this is We're going down a rabbit hole, but it's probably interesting to our audience. I have this fitness group of about 40 people. That is this group I've been doing for years where basically I view it as like my obligation to test everything out possible so I can make recommendations to people. And secondarily, I'm working with my father on a medical practice that involves like in part some of these pharmaceuticals that generally general practice hasn't caught up with in my opinion. So I like to try things just to get a sense of what they are. Uh, and so the... So I tried to get it and it was like over a thousand dollars a month. And I'm like, I'm not going to pay for this. Then, you know, people who listen to this podcast know I travel internationally a lot. So I was able to procure it internationally for like $150 a month. And so I tried it for a few months. And this is a good segue into the downsides of this drug. So yes, it absolutely caused me to lose weight. 
I, but uh, you know, it's hard to separate my interventions to, from other though? things. Like, I, no, I absolutely you're not didn't. the test case for somebody who would need this drug. I don't think. Yeah. But it is notable that it works, but how it works, I think, is interesting. So you talked about how one of the mechanisms is it delays gastric emptying and makes you feel full. One other thing that happens is it it induces, depending on who you are, either a low level of nausea or a pretty significant level of nausea. You know, Atia talks about how this is the most common side effect he sees in patients, and he gives certain percentages to it. It could also make you feel a bit lightheaded. So for me, one of the reasons why I went off of it there were a couple of things happening. There was a worldwide shortage that happened at the same time. So I felt it was unethical to stay on the drug, but also the, there was a, it's just very uncomfortable to, especially if you play a lot of sports, like you can get sick and you get lightheaded. So he, Tia talks about how a lot of people just go off the drug because of that. It's just like really rough to be on. Uh, but the cost is also a big issue. Most people don't have the ability, the flexibility that I do to try to get it from other countries. So the idea that you're paying over $1,000 a month is pretty significant. Now, I do want to say that there's a lot of hay being made that you have to inject yourself for this, but the it's not like a needle. It's a little prick, and it's not, I would say that was the least, like, it, it, it wasn't in any way a barrier for me, unless you're mm-hmm. really weird about like sticking yourself on anything. I, I feel like that is the least of the most concerning parts of this whole thing. But it works. And a lot of people who are healthy and not obese use it. So I was like, when I was in Costa Rica, there was this guy staying in my hotel who was doing the marketing for the hotel. And I forget how it came up, but he had mentioned to me that he's on Ozempic. And this guy is skinnier than I am. And I was like, why are you still on this thing? He'd been on it for like six months. And he was like, well, I want to get to like, I don't know, 8% body fat. And I'm like, well, okay. This is getting a little crazy, <laughs> especially if people with diabetes don't have this drug. Now, I think Novo Nordisk and these other companies are now starting to churn this stuff out. So I think this shortage is, is going to be short-lived. So I think that ethical concern uh, will be yeah. probably assuaged soon. But it is it is a weird thing to do if you're already skinny, I think. And I'm, I'm guilty of it. I think it's a weird thing to do almost in general personally like i i unless it's seriously a last resort i don't really think this is like getting someone on a drug for the rest of their life in order to maintain weight loss is really kind of a disturbing prospect to me um especially considering that there's like increasing talk about giving it to younger and younger people including the american um, academy of pediatrics who recently um, recommended that obese children could get gastric bypass surgery or potentially weight loss drugs um, as early as 12 or 13 which to me like the only test case that i feel like i could say i mean obviously do what you want with your body, talk to your doctor. But like the only test case for me where I feel like this is potentially like workable in my mind is if you've really tried everything, you've gone through every weight loss method, you've you've dieted, you've exercised, this is your last resort is turning to a medication. But the idea that we would tell young people who haven't really learned how to feed themselves, take care of themselves, um, look after themselves that like, here's just this quick fix cheat thing that you can beyond for the rest of your life, it seems like a cynical moneymaker to me. I'm suspicious that it's, I mean, there aren't even long-term safety studies. It, it was developed in 2012. Like I, I'm really adverse to the idea of giving this to minors, to people who haven't learned how to take responsibility for themselves. I don't think it's a good message or a good medical choice. 
I have a lot to say about what you just said, but let me first turn to Dr. Peter Atia, who talked a little bit about the people who are skeptical of the widespread use of these drugs. I think there's some people who think that you shouldn't need a drug to help you. And if you need a drug to lose weight, you're somehow a bad person or something like that. But, you know, I just I just think categorically, that's just such a, a simple minded view of the world. Right. Like we live in a world with technology. And just as you don't rub two sticks together when you want to have a fire, if a Zippo lighter is available to you, if you have tried every dietary strategy imaginable and your metabolism is not you know, moving in the right direction, why shouldn't we explore other ways to kickstart that? Okay, let me respond to this first. I, I never made any moral judgments on individuals who choose to do this first. So I just, I'm not the person that he's describing here. But I... No 12-year-old has tried every diet in the book and tried everything that they could possibly get their hands on. Like, I'm talking about, like, that to me just isn't a solution. That's that's us just putting our hands up and saying, okay, we have we have such an unhealthy society and world that we've created. We, we've failed so fundamentally to teach people how to treat their bodies right and take care of themselves that we're just going to give them this ridiculously expensive drug that's going to line the pockets of you're, pharmaceutical You're picking companies. the most fringe case, the 12-year-olds. That's not where except most of this debate is. This, that's except like, for that this is like... Let's just all I mean, agree it was only in 2021... Giving- this is when it was re- approved for weight loss. And already the American Academy of Pediatrics is saying that this is potentially a path for people that young. Let, I think let's just, the slippery slope let's is already, dispense, we're already at the bottom. Well, okay. yeah, well, we're not at the bottom because like <laughs> how many young people are actually on this drug? Almost none. And so yeah. I think, so we're, <laughs> so let's argue about that when that comes. I think the, the widespread adoption of this is... I think where the the societal debate is now, starting with adults, and actually really where it is right now is is wealthy adults. People like Elon Musk, who lost something like 30 pounds and, and credits this to being one of the main driving factors. And yes, although like the use of this for weight loss is a relatively new phenomenon, versions of these drugs have been around for a long time. And so the the downside risks of using many of these drugs we do have a pretty extensive series of data, but like anything else, you test these things over time. You know, it's not like 20% of the American population is on this stuff right now. So, you know, as the use of this ramps up, we'll get more and more data about whether it's effective or not. And do I know for sure it's going to be like totally safe forever? No, but that's like the risk that early adopters take. And I think that given the state of obesity in America, I'm ready for all tools being used. And we think only about, treating disease. So you have to be obese in order to for us to have a medical intervention. But we need more preventative medicine in this country. We need to be giving people things so that they don't become obese, so they don't become type 2 diabetics. Because that's the other side of the equation is if, if we are giving people this drug, not people like me, but people who are on the cusp of obesity or on the cusp of being on the cusp of obesity or type 2 diabetes, and if this drug in part prevents people from tipping over into being diabetic or obese, that actually clears up more resources down the line for other people who do have those conditions. And obesity is massive right now. So it increased by 3% obesity in the United States between March of 2020 and March of 2021. And this is not just a pandemic phenomenon. You know, obesity has been going up pretty much significant, like, uh, you know, every year consistently for our entire lifetimes. Matthew Iglesias wrote a good piece about this. And 
Obesity itself is linked to 30 to 53% of new diabetes cases in the US every year, according to the American Heart Association. So this is, you know, the causal link here is significant if this drug is anywhere near as powerful as that 2021 study suggested. And if we continue to not see significant, um, you know, like obviously nausea and all that is, it sucks, but that's like for the person taking it to decide whether they wanna deal with it or not. But if we're not seeing any permanent damage from this drug, and taking this drug helps. Look, everything's uncomfortable. Working out is uncomfortable. Dieting and having caloric uh, restrictions are uncomfortable. Gastric bypass, as you mentioned, is incredibly uncomfortable. My mom did it and it was really, really uncomfortable experience for everybody. It was very difficult and it was a pretty relatively high stakes surgery. So all of these things have costs. But I think right now, based on the available data, if there are more studies like the 2021 study to come out, the, the cost-benefit analysis is, is going to come out on the side of do it for a lot of Americans. I mean, there are millions and millions of Americans who are overweight, though, and I don't know how $1,000 plus a month per person is going to be sustainable either on a personal level or on an insurance level if this is something that does become mainstream and wide, widely used in cases where it's not an extreme need. There's a couple things that are going to happen to drive this price down. Number one is the economies of scale are going to go up. Novo Nordisk is is producing more of it. Now, this doesn't always happen in the world of pharmaceuticals, but ostensibly that could mean that the cost per unit goes down. Second thing is that uh, there are other competitors coming to the market now. So I was talking to my father about this. Like He's got his eye on a couple of new drugs that are coming out that he thinks could be more powerful now. Do I, is he right? I have no idea. But there already are certain other competitors. There's like Trulicity, for example, and they don't have exactly as powerful a data. But if you start to see them decreasing their price point in order to chase after customers, this is like supply demand. Uh, and then you could also have insurance companies deciding to actually uh, green light this for more people for treatment of obesity and prevention of type 2 diabetes because they may decide, like if this drug hits $500 per month, for example, they're like, all right, well, there's a certain class of people who if they tip into diabetes or they tip into obesity and we could prevent that, that actually saves us money in the long term by paying for this drug. So I actually think that the price could go down here. I don't think it has to stay at $1,000 plus. And actually in other, you know, for example, we should probably ask why in other countries it's $100, $150, right? So like the, obviously other countries have figured this out before, either through subsidies or um you know, by the way that the pharmaceutical market works in other countries, it's not specific to this drug. Drugs are cheaper almost anywhere other than the United States. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I'm more wary about what it means to be dependent on something like a drug like this long-term when I, obviously there are people who struggle with their weight and maybe this is their last case scenario, like last, last ditch effort to help themselves. I understand that, but I think the way that this has just been so widely adopted by people who don't need it or potentially could be adopted for people who haven't even gone through the life chapters of struggling with trying to take care of themselves and, and assume responsibility is, I'm just a lot more suspicious than you, but I think we can agree to disagree on that one. <laughs> Ricky, let's talk about credit card rewards. And there's... I have a whole story about credit card rewards and even just the past 24 hours, Ricky, but there's a downside to these things, huh? 
Yeah. So um, there's certainly an upside that you hear quite a lot about in TV ads and pop-up ads on the internet and in the mail. And even if you're on the airplane and you're captive and JetBlue was like, maybe now's the time to sign up for the JetBlue credit card and get your free snack box or whatever. Um, there are a lot of incentives with like cash back points, miles, sign up bonuses. But um, Emily Stewart of Vox recently came out with an article that kind of exposes how, in a sense, you could view it more as a wealth redis- redistribution system going from lower income people paying essentially into the credit card companies at higher interest rates because they're more likely to have credit card debt. And those interest payments ultimately coming out the other end to incentivize higher income people who are able to pay off their debts more easily to um, collect rewards. And so it's kind of a, it's, there, there are obviously other ways that credit card companies are making money, but this is a large one that is effectively, I mean, I agree with the thesis that it is kind of moving money from lower income earners to people who are higher income and reaping these rewards. It's a fair critique, I think. Yeah, and I want to point our listeners to the segment we did in August about interchange fees at these banks because you you start to go through this and say, well, all right, how do these banks make money? The number one way that banks make money is through the interest payments, right? So that's that's the main way, and that's why in many ways credit cards could be regressive, regressive because people who have trouble paying them off, wind up footing the lion's share of the budgets. And those are the budgets that we're pulling for when we hand out things like these rewards in part. But there are also these interchange fees that we talked about on the last podcast, which it was complicated, so we don't need to go into it here. But you know, some of these, these credit card companies like American Express, they charge anywhere from 23 to 3.5% for credit cards to the merchants. And the numbers that they pull here are absolutely insane. And so like a lot of these companies, like, and, and a lot of the, the, the reforms here are actually looking to take aim not at the interest fees, but the interchange fees, because as we talked about in that segment, the, there's like a lot of like, you know, weird monopolization and like coercive behavior against merchants there. But this is more about the consumers of the credit cards themselves. And people who hold credit cards, you know, a lot of them are not engaging in very healthy behavior. So almost half of credit card holders, 46% carry debt from month to month. That's up from 39% a year ago. Over 35% of US adults carry credit card debt from month to month. That's up from 29% last year. And when you ask people why they get credit cards, you like if you are like me, you think of it for the rewards mostly. That's what I do. Obviously, you need a credit card to function, but like, why do you get a one credit card versus another? For me, it's all about the rewards. But if you ask the average consumer, most of them actually use it for cash back. 36% of cardholders name that. That was the most popular response. And ahead of it's accepted at most places or it has a low interest rate, only 7% of people said travel rewards and 7% said low fees. And so the, like those people like me who are all about the perks and rewards, we're in the vast minority of credit card consumers. And I think you know, that's maybe part of the reason why we're reaping outsized benefits from this. Yeah, I think there's also, um, in terms of people who hold debt, there's probably two distinct groups. One being people who just are spending money that they don't have and in a line of credit that almost doesn't feel real. If you're just tapping a card rather than handing your cold, hard cash, you do probably spend more. Um, But then there's another group of people who I have very reasonable 
instances where like maybe they're they have to pay a medical bill that they don't have a choice of paying and then they end up being crippled by debt that just compounds with interest. And so I think there's a whole host of things. I think there is a trend I've seen certainly among my generation of younger people who just view a credit card as a ticket to spend whatever they can and do. Um, right. But then there's also like, at least for me, I'm I'm kind of in the Dave Ramsey, Mark Cuban camp of credit cards are probably a bad thing if you're a young person, unless you're very financially responsible. Um, Dave Ramsey has a quote here that says, let's face it, no one ever got rich off credit card points, which I think is true. But I'm not as like purist as him in the sense that like you shouldn't have a credit card and you should just be using a debit card. Like you, as, as a young person, you should perversely need to have a credit card if you want to get a mortgage down the road or get approved for a car loan. And so you do have to build credit. So we've created this system that even if you don't want to participate in it in order to be financially responsible and to only spend money that you actually have in your bank, you still kind of have to if you want to participate in society. So I do think it has like a very um, concerning kind of grab on us no matter what, period. Yeah, I do want to take aim at Ramsey's point, though. Nobody's arguing that you get rich off of credit card points, but they are arguing that you can significantly ex improve your experience as a consumer. And I'll just talk about my last 24 hours. And this is, if if if, if listeners are taking note, this is the, uh, I am, I'm living a very fancy, inaccessible life episode yeah, here. Yeah, I was just about to uh, say, Robbie, you sound whatever. so relatable today. Well, okay, well, better better than these people who pretend to be populists like, and who are like millionaires making money off of their audience. I'm like, I don't pretend to be anything other than I am. So I'm just, I let the audience in on whatever crazy lifestyle I'm living right now. But let me give one example here of just the past 24 hours of how I use credit cards, right? Because my, my theory on credit cards is always... You have to use them to function in society, so you might as well become very informed about how you use them, which is how I want our audience to use them. Pretty much everybody listening to this podcast probably has some form of credit card, so you might as well become an expert on what how you can get the most out of those credit cards. So this is just the past 24 hours. I had a flight from Costa Rica to San Diego booked using credit card points. That flight was canceled because Dallas had weather, so I had to rebook the flight also using credit card points to get me to Miami. But I wasn't planning to be in Miami, so I had to go to a hotel. So I used my credit cards, like has a service you can call them, to book the hotel. I got a huge discount on the hotel. And because I used my credit card rewards, I picked a credit card that gave me $100 food credit at the hotel I'm in. I also drove to, I got an upgrade also because I used the right credit card. I also drove to the hotel in Uber, which I also get a credit on my statement because I made sure that I used the right credit card that had the Uber discount on it. Oh, and I also get a 4 p.m. checkout at this hotel because if you use the right credit card, they allow you to extend your afternoon for free. So it allows me to do this podcast without having to pay for it, which sometimes you have to pay like $100 extra to stay in a hotel. They, they run up the the, the fees if you want to have a late checkout, which is very inconvenient for recording this podcast. So that all is just the past 24 hours for me. So yes, Dave Ramsey, I'm not rich off of credit cards, but because I read the fine print and choose the right credit card for the right thing, I get a lot out of these things, way, way, way more than the fees that I pay for them. And so what I implore our audience to do, if you're listening to this, is n like just follow a few simple rules on credit cards. Number one, never spend more money on a credit card 
than you have. Make sure you could pay it off month to month unless you're truly in an emergency and exhaust all alternative options. Two is like really take into account the fine print on these things. Like what do they allow you to do? If you like to travel a lot, there are certain cards that make more sense. If you like to you know, buy more office supplies, there's more. And there are all sorts of tricks to the trade. And there's a podcast I recommend to people called All the Hacks that is really good. You listen to this and they have good show notes and they basically teach you everything you need to know about how to use this card versus that card, et cetera. And no, it will not make you rich, but it will significantly improve your experience because yes, there's some inequalities here, but they're not going anywhere. So you might as well take advantage of them because they're there. I agree with that in I've large left part, you speechless. but I, <laughs> I've had a lot more of a relatable past 24 hours myself, but I won't bore anyone with the details. But um, I, oh, please, I do think, please, though, please do tell. Oh, no, I just haven't left my apartment literally in 24 hours. I'm finishing my <laughs> book right now. So I actually have not gone outside. Um, but I one important nuance here is that for a lot of these reward systems, you have to spend more in order to reap more rewards. And so if you don't have that expendable income, it might not really pay out the same dividends in the end. Um, and I do think that that's pretty important to put out there. It doesn't reap the same benefits for everyone across the board at all income levels. And that's just a fact. But I mean, there definitely are like there's an Amex card that you get like 6% back on groceries and everyone needs groceries. So that makes sense for pretty much everyone. Um, but I would say, you know, there's there's a whole host of things here. But I it is interesting to me that $15 billion a year end up basically being redistributed from lower income earners to higher income earners via these systems. I mean, I think that there is a degree of personal responsibility at play here, but there is also kind of a cynical, um, like advertising free stuff and free things. And like, it's a little too good to be true for most people. And I do think that that is true, but we spoke to Vox's Emily Stewart, who wrote the article that inspired this conversation about who really benefits in the end, no matter what, which she says, and I agree with is banks. So credit cards have swipe fees. Rewards cards sometimes have higher swipe fees. Um, so if you are a super prime credit card user, if you're a prime credit card user, um, you probably use your rewards card a lot. And so when you're spending a lot of money, the bank is making a lot of money on um, these swipe fees that the merchant is paying, that the store is paying, right? Um, for subprime customers, um, a lot of the bank's revenue comes from interest income. So when you don't pay off your balance month to month, the bank makes money on that interest. Um, for people in the middle, banks make money on both, right? It's the interest charges and the swipe fees. So you know, banks don't do any of this for their own health or for your own health, right? They do it because it makes money and because rewards cards are a good way to get consumers in the door. Well, to put another number to this, in 2019, Chase made $50 billion from credit card interest and $20 billion from the interchange income that we talked about. So this is, this is a massive amount of money at yeah. stake here. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, my final thought here is this entire conversation is just a test case for a financial literacy course in education, which I know we've <laughs> talked about quite a few times in the past week. But, um, you know, it's an increasingly convoluted, kind of confusing world to navigate, especially as a young person when you're getting offers in the mail from credit card companies all the time. And it feels like the incentive is just to sign up for all of them. I, I, definitely can say as a member of Gen Z, I was not adequately prepared to figure out what actually is going on here. And um, 
how to be as responsible as possible. I've figured it out in the end on my own, but I think that that should, the impetus should be on our education system to make sure that we're not just letting kids out into the world to spend without, um, reckless abandon basically at this point and without any concern for their financial health. Um, I don't know. Yeah. But how Ricky, are we going to fit that financial literacy course in if we're doing civics all day? No, I'm kidding. But we'll, we'll talk about that later in the podcast. We'll do it. <laughs> we'll do that later in the podcast. There is this interesting paper we're going to link to in the show notes from 2022 uh, from, among other people, Andrea Presbitero, who's a, a senior economist and researcher at the IMF. And it actually looks at people by FICO credit score and like basically breaks it down to say like, all right, if you're a super prime credit, so somebody with a 780 to 850 credit score, then you're going to earn according to her calculations, $9.50 in rewards and pay $7.10 less in interest each month. Whereas if you look on the subprime side of things, you're going to earn just $1.80 or $1.80 in rewards and pay $6.40 more in interest. So it's like totally flipped at the bottom end of the scale. So I think the bottom line for people who are listening to all this is, well, if you're somebody who is... um, if you're somebody who's just trying to figure out like what credit cards do I take and which ones do I rip up, et cetera, first of all, be careful about canceling your credit cards. Make sure you you do it and you keep track of that. And there are all sorts of technologies you could use to monitor these types of things to make sure you don't miss deadlines. But really be clear about your goals. So if you're somebody who thinks you're going to carry a balance from month to month, then the interest rate on your credit card is probably the most important thing. If you're somebody who is not going to carry balance and you're pretty secure financially and you're just using it to conduct transactions, then you want to start to look at other things like what's the annual fee? What are the perks, et cetera? Like, is it commonly accepted everywhere? So like if you live in a small town that doesn't take Amex, don't use Amex, et cetera. So there's like a whole decision tree. There are a whole bunch of websites that help you figure this stuff out, the points guy, all the hacks, et cetera. And so really over-research this stuff. I'm like a lawyer when it comes to my credit cards. Like I know every little rule when I'm like going and there's there apps that you could use for this too, or I'm like, all right, I'm going to make this purchase. Like, am I going to get 5X on this or 10X on that? Is there a discount at this or whatever? So this is the modern day version of couponing. If you're old enough to have parents who used to cut out the coupons. So it, it can be really fun, but it could also be really scary and bad if you do this blind. And so super important area for you to just keep an eye on. And I agree, we should be teaching kids about this kind of stuff. On January 9th, Buddy Carter, a Georgia representative, introduced the Fair Tax Act, um, and various iterations of this concept have been floating around since the 90s. But um, essentially, this is a, a very ambitious goal here from Carter, but it would include eradicating the IRS by 2027 um, and implement no more income tax, just a sales tax, a flat they say 23% really kind of works out to more of a 30% tax nationwide. Um, And we don't have a set date on when we're going to vote on this. Um, It's clearly very ambitious and um, almost definitely not going to happen. Uh, More of a result of internal skirmishes in the Republican Party than of actual ambitions to affect change in policy. But certainly an interesting and provocative idea that we're wrestling with now. Yeah. And 
This has 0% chance of passing. So you may yeah. be wondering, why are we talking about this? We're talking about it for two reasons. One is there's a huge like internal dynamic within the GOP that's important here because McCarthy had to promise a vote on this in order to become speaker. But two is that the d discussion around this can tell us a little something about our current tax code and where we could be if in good faith we came together and tried to make this better. So just to run through a couple of these just planks of this plan, this bill would kill all taxes except a 30% sales tax. They claim it's 23%, but they're basically adding the tax onto the total of the transaction. So if you if you're if you're having a hundred dollar transaction and it's a thirty dollar tax, they're not calling it a thirty percent tax because they're using hundred thirty dollars to be the total. <laughs> so there's like some disingenuous yeah. math here. Uh, if you're poor here, you'll get a prebate that eliminates the effect of the tax, which Grover Norquist has called universal basic income which we can come back to, which is a really fascinating area of debate here. Uh, states were responsible, would be responsible for collecting this. There would be no IRS after 2027. And the bill would terminate the national sales tax if the 16th Amendment to the Constitution, which authorizes an income tax, is not repealed within seven years after the enactment of the bill. And now we don't have to go into the details of how you repeal uh, a provision of the Constitution, but needless to say, that ain't happening either. So essentially, this this bill would essentially mean no taxes after that point. There would be no IRS and no no sales tax. What could go wrong, Ricky? A lot. Um, potentially a ten trillion dollar deficit over the next ten years. Um, we would it would have to be way higher than this thirty percent rate to actually match our current tax revenue. States would be responsible for administrating this, which could potentially be a mess. Businesses would effectively have to act as tax collectors, um, which would be an impossible number of transactions to really like audit or keep track of, not to mention the fact that the incentives to skirt around this would be enormous. Um, so I would say this is not... I. Anyone who's listened to this podcast for a while knows I have some pretty ambitious tax goals. This is not really one of them. I don't think um, putting it on the transaction end rather than the income end really has any upsides and only really has downsides. But there are plenty of members in the Republican uh, world that feel otherwise. Um, this was first introduced in the 90s as a response to Clinton's tax policies. It was tossed around in different versions by a lot of uh, candidates in the 96 election. And then Mike Huckabee uh, kind of revamped it in 2008. Let's hear from him. Trillions of dollars of money is parked offshore that would be in our economy, but it isn't because people are protecting it from the income tax. So if we stop punishing, which means taxing, the productivity of workers, if we stop taxing the investment of investors, then we have work and investment coming back. We're losing both. And that's why the fair tax is a superior alternative to taxing people's productivity, their income, their investments. And that clip was from 2016. And I have you know, some questions for him. Like there are all sorts of proposals to help us repatriate this money that he's talking about that's abroad that doesn't involve the sales tax. So I'd be interested if he supports any of those provisions. But the, my worry here is there are real reasons to simplify the tax code. We've talked about it. It's yes. needlessly complex. As you've talked about, the cost of preparation is insane in this country. There's uneven compliance, which means that the more affluent people you know, it's it's kind of like a version of the credit card stuff that we mm -hmm. talked about, which is the more sophisticated people who can read the fine print and hire the right lawyers are going to, you know, do really well. And then those who are lower down the line are going to... 
Yeah, and it costs so much money and it's so confusing to do your taxes. I, I often have the experience. Just to put a few stats behind that, um, Americans spend 1.7 billion hours annually preparing taxes, which is a huge loss of productivity. Um, in 2019, they spent $31 billion paying other people, tax professionals, to figure out how the heck to be a citizen in this country. Um, and a George Mason University study found that um, if you add together the compliance and work hours that are lost through our tax system, that adds up to a $600 billion loss in the economy annually. Um, and Money Magazine, this is kind of my favorite stat here, sent a family, a fictional family's taxes to 46 different top-end accountants to get estimates back. Every single one had a different response and estimate in the end. And they varied in the range of thousands. So that gives you a sense of how even if that is your literal job and your top of the line accountant, it's still confusing. It's still opaque. And obviously, we need reform, but I'm just not sure this is it. Yeah, it's. It, I don't know if the, our listeners have had this experience. Like I, as I've gotten older, I've gone from doing my own taxes to then using like the H&R Block style people to now like maybe like a leg up from that. And each step of the way, I hand in my taxes at the end of the year. And I generally don't itemize it until very recently. But once you start itemizing your taxes, you have this like sense that you're like, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, honestly, like mm -hmm. people explaining to me, I'm like, I always I, I hand it off with some apprehension. I'm like, I'm not exactly sure what these rules are. They're often gray area rules. So you ask people like, could I write this off versus that? And they're like, maybe. <laughs> and so some people are more comfortable writing more things off than others. And it's a game of chicken with the IRS. Yeah. So it's like, all right, like, are you going to be the person picked out of the hat? And do you have a sensible explanation for whatever you're writing off. And I think most sensible people are like, I'm not going anywhere near that line. Whereas other people are like totally fine going over that line. And like, obviously there's a whole debate about like whether the IRS is fully funded or not, but that's not how this should be done. Right. It shouldn't be th that variation you're talking about shouldn't exist. And this sort of voluntary compliance and comfort with risks shouldn't be the determining factor about whether you take home 10 percent more in you know take home pay every year than somebody else who's a more risk averse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've long been a proponent of a flat tax. I feel like this is a weird inverted version of it, but it just doesn't really it it seems way more needlessly complicated than it has to be for me um, from my vantage point. And I think, unfortunately, I have to just look at it kind of cynically in terms of um, McCarthy wanting the Freedom Caucus votes, the 20 members to um, back him in order to get a vote on this, which would never really come to fruition anyways, which is just another level of cynicism on that point is that they just want to go back to their base and say, well, I tried this, even though we kind of know it's never going to work. Um, so I find this whole thing a little frustrating because it it takes away from like genuine conversation, like what we're having right now about how we could actually reform things in a practical matter here. Um, yeah. It's just more political gridlock. I find it exhausting and frustrating. I think we could just do a flat tax and be done with it. But of course, that would have um, a lot of a lot of uh, proponent uh, opponents to it um, in Congress for sure. But yeah, I think it has a better chance than the fair tax act. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, obviously there's also existing sales taxes in a lot of States. So you'd have to take that into account. So if this 30% actually would be more, so you start to, to put those things together and say, well, at a time when inflation is going up, what is this going to do to consumer spending in this country? You know, I don't know. Um, 
this is why I actually think like our federalist system is interesting. I wonder if there's some way to start testing out different versions of this. Obviously, I know the yeah. national system is national, but yeah, I wonder if there is a way to test this out. This laboratory of you know that we have you know 50, 50 different states, fifty different tax systems. But I you know I'm with you. I wish this were. I wish this were above board and genuine because it also feels like they're trying to smuggle a small government agenda through the tax code, right? They're two well, different I'm fine debates. With that. that part's but, okay with me. <laughs> but when you, I'm have, when, you, when you have next to no chance, and it's not to yeah. say that small government agenda and simplifying the tax code are, either of them are not necessarily wrong, but linking them together means you have 0% chance of getting anything remotely close to this done. So if you then said, yeah. let's just focus on simplifying the tax code, do I think they have a chance of passing this? No, but you have a hell of a lot better of a chance than this poison pill that you put in it, which essentially means there's no IRS after yeah. a few years and no sales tax, which you know is so disingenuous to me. No income tax. It, just, it totally poisons this entire, yeah, just no income tax, no, but also no sales tax. So under this, mm -hmm. they would abolish mm -hmm. the sales Long tax yeah. and the get rid of the constitutional provision allowing for income tax. So like that would just mean nothing. Like this country, like it's just going to be like some Hobbesian, you know, dog eat dog world. And even most libertarians, I can imagine, Ricky, aren't for that. Yeah, I haven't done a survey here. I feel, I feel like we might have some purists that are gung-ho and in favor, but I don't know. I just find this stuff annoying and exhausting as someone who has never been in politics, who doesn't really have a lot of patience for politicians, because this is such, like, nobody likes to pay taxes. Nobody likes our system. It's It could be such, like, ripe bipartisan fruit for anyone to take. I think you could get, if you made some really common sense reforms here, um, of which there are many, you could get broad-based support, especially from day-to-day -day Americans. This is something that impacts virtually every single one of us. And it's just frustrating to see that this is the best that we can get in terms of reform. But, you know, yeah. such such is the swamp. This is Ricky. You've reached the last debate. If you have some feedback for us, leave it after the town. Well, Ricky, we have some voicemails, uh, and I think we had a, a couple of listeners weigh in on our civics discussion. Let's go to the tape. My name is Joseph, and I am calling in regards to your uh, civics edu education segment. Frank Zappa uh, is often quoted as saying that discontinuing the four-year civics requirement and replacing it with social studies was simply a cover to misinform uh, future American voters and to not lead them into uh, being good citizens. Kind of in relation to that, I several years ago came across my some of my grandfather's middle and high school textbooks, and he went to school in the uh, late 20s, early 30s. And his eighth grade English textbook was informative. There's an entire unit in that which contained important American writings. So it's kind of this broader understanding of civic education, not simply as how does government work, but what does it mean to be an American in the first place? What kind of heritage are we coming from, and how do we best 
take part in that process. Thank you. Goodbye. Hey, guys, just uh, listened to a great segment from you on um, civics education. And I just want to pass on a, a quick thought that although I agree with Ravi and David's point, I think they're um, kind of ducking the basic issue. And Ricky was right on point um, with her comments in, in that people can engage by protesting, et cetera, et cetera. But do they really understand what they're protesting or are they out there because somebody on social media told them to go or they saw something on the evening news? Um, and I, I think in order to work within a system, you have to understand a system. And, you know, to, I believe what was Ricky's point, if you don't understand um, the branches of government, what's the difference between what's accomplished at the federal, the state, the local level, et cetera, um, you're, you're just kind of going on emotions rather than um, knowledge and knowledge of how the system works. Um, is really important. And, and one anecdotal thing to Ricky's point, my son's about her age. He had a civics course, admittedly, in a private school in St. Louis. And um, to this day, he says it was like the best course he had all through junior high and high school. And he remembers the teacher really well. And they they went over the basics in some depth um, and even had like mock congressional sessions and where, and to Robbie's point, where uh, this, you had to debate um um, potential laws, et cetera, et cetera, and the teacher would critique um, whether they, you know, made a good debate or not and that sort of thing. So I, I think, frankly, Ravi and David were ducking a little bit on, you know, you can't critically engage if you don't have the background. And, yes, they could find it on their own, but why not teach it? I wish that I got this guy's son's civics course. That sounds like a like actually really interesting, engaging, and exciting thing that as a teenager you'd be kind of excited to go to versus chemistry. It would get you thinking about being an American and also excited to debate your friends or to understand bills that are actually maybe potentially going to get passed locally or nationally. Like it just seems like a fun, exciting way to get people engaged. I'm I'm all for it. I wish I had it. I, 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 and the second example as well, like just reading important American formative texts and stuff, not just for the like memorizing history to get to the history AP exam or something like that and memorizing dates and, and, and battles, but for understanding like the really fundamental tenets of why our country is so unique in the scheme of human history, I think is um, a really important thing and something that our education is lacking. So thank you to both of you for um, taking my team here. I was outnumbered in the last podcast. I want to underline something that we talked about, which is when we say we want that social studies and history exist, what we're saying is those subjects already subsume civics. So part of what I was arguing for and potentially David was arguing is that we don't overly complexify what we're asking schools to do because we're already asking them through those subjects that those are the mechanisms that we're going to teach civics because you only have so many hours in a day. And so one thing that happens with these, you know, school curriculum debates is we keep piling things on. We need more recess. We need more sports. We need more fitness. We need financial literacy courses. We need, but we to can also have less of some things. Well, I agree, but often that's not the discussion where actually school days are Should often be. getting shorter, but we're already asking this. So I'm pu I just pulled up the New York State 
social studies and history standards and high level, this is the high level standards. And then there's like the more minutia of the standards. And then there's curriculum, which is different than standards. The standards are basically, you're telling schools, this is what you must teach and what you're going to be tested on. They have eight different planks to the civic participation portion of the social studies and history uh, standards. And they're not just straight knowledge. There is straight knowledge, like the three branches of government, et cetera. But in ninth grade, for example, demonstrate respect for the rights of others in discussions of classrooms, debate, respectfully disagree with viewpoints and provide evidence, participate in activities that focus on your school, community, state, or national issue or problem, explain different philosophies of social pol political participation, identify, describe, and contrast the roles of individuals in political participation in life. You know, and it, it goes on and on and on, like the different responsibilities of citizens, how you exercise your franchise. These are all things that are in the standards already, right? So my point, I think at some point we're arguing semantics, but part of my thing is why I thought that the, the debate was overblown is that we're like, we don't have national standards, or we don't have national standards on anything. We don't have state standards on this. Yes, we do. We just put them in history and social studies. So like that we're, we're arguing at, at the level, like we're, we're arguing about things that already exist was part of my point. Well, should we leave it at that? All right. Well, I think that's it. Thank you to all our listeners. And we'll be right back here on Tuesday, same time and place. Make sure to get out there and rate, review, and subscribe to The Lost Debate. Uh, check out The Hardest Step on its feed. Check out that first episode. We'll also be, as I said, dropping, or as Ricky said, dropping that first episode into this feed in a couple of days just to give you a sense of what that is like. Uh, and that's all. Thank you very much. Lost Debate is the flagship show of the Lost Debate Network. Our executive producer is Michael Hendricks. Research support by Joe Garvey and Ariane Misra. Studio support and video editing by Julia Waldman. Editing and sound design by Joe Engelbrecht and Dean Metherell. 